My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, uh, I would love to sometime. Also, if this is your first day, we in particular want to welcome you. Thanks for for coming out. Um, We're going to be starting a new series on the Beatitudes. We just finished up Jonah. And the Beatitudes, for those of you who don't know, is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, as that sermon has been come to to known. It's in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the most well-known portion of the New Testament, and maybe even, maybe even in the whole Bible. If you talk to someone who knows who Jesus is, they most likely will know a portion of the sermon. It's been used by many different people and leaders over the years, often leaders of other religions, to describe what a good life ought to entail. It lays out this practical vision this practical vision for how to live a good life. Often people will use it to show how there are similarities between religions and maybe even attempt to show that all religions are essentially the same thing. However, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount in context and take the entirety of the teaching, we can see there's a uniqueness to what Jesus is saying. He is not just laying out a simple set of rules to live by, some sort of creed to follow in order to be a good person. What really is happening in this sermon is Jesus is laying out what it means to live as citizens in the kingdom of God. Not how to work to enter that kingdom, but what kingdom life is like based solely on what Jesus Christ has already done for those who believe him. And with the Beatitudes... Kicking off this teaching, he's sharing with his disciples and us the blessings of being part of God's kingdom. So if you will stand with me, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, just verses 2 and 3. So we're keeping them short on these Beatitudes. That doesn't necessarily mean that the sermons will only be 15 minutes, but we'll see. Chapter 5, verse 2 and 3 says this, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this, uh, for this morning. We're so thankful that we are able to come and gather and worship with one another, that we're able to worship you, Lord, just for what you've done uh, in our lives, and in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray today as we dive into the Beatitudes that you would be uh, just softening hearts who need to hear your good news. I pray for those of us who have been walking with you for a long time, we would uh, just be struck by your goodness again and again and again. And we're just so thankful, Lord, for the ability and the privilege to gather together and sit under your word and worship and song, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. So we're going to be talking just about a couple things today. We're going to start with uh, kind of some background context of, uh, of this portion of Scripture. You know, it, it's, it's important that when you, when you just hop into somewhere in the Bible, you understand kind of where it fits in it, where it fits within the whole context of Scripture, not just the book itself that we're reading from, but also the whole overarching story 
line of what God has revealed to us throughout history and that we have compiled in the Bible. So we're going to be spending some time laying some foundation of where we're at in Matthew. We're going to be looking at uh, what led up to the Beatitudes, and then we're just going to unpack the first Beatitude and see what it has for us. So it's important to understand where this specific sermon or collection of teachings that Jesus had is, it's important to understand where and why it is placed, where it's at in the Bible. From the beginning of time, God created humanity to live under his rule in his domain by his word, and Adam and Eve were given a perfect place to be in Eden. God cared for them, he communed with them, he provided for them, and gave them so, so many benefits as they lived under his rule. And as we all know, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The one thing God told them not to do, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had to do it. And from that time forward, people have been affected with sin. They have rebelled against God. They have rebelled against the rule of God in their lives. But by God's grace, the Lord has preserved a people for his own possession and established this nation early on in Genesis of Israel. And through this nation of Israel, God promised to reestablish his rule over all of creation and bring it back to the way that it was originally created to operate. He promised Abraham back in Genesis 12 that his descendants will become a great nation. They will inhabit a promised land, and they would be God's own people. This picture of a nation was promised to Abraham, and over many, many years, God established his rule and his presence among all the nations through the people group of Israel. They eventually received the promised land, and eventually, everyone said, you know what, we want a king. We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And even when the prophet Samuel gave them some warnings about what having a king would mean for them, they said, yeah, we still want one. And God provided So the kingdom of Israel had been set up by the grace and the mercy of God, despite constant failures and rebellion by his people. But of course, this kingdom didn't last long, because eventually they were sent into exile in Babylon, the Israelites were. They later returned, and they began to see that this nation, this kingdom that God had promised was not yet established in the way it was supposed to be or the way they thought it would be. So I'm sure it was a little confusing for them because they were, they were given many prophecies, many promises that God was going to establish a forever kingdom through these people. In 2 Samuel 7:16, God is speaking through the prophet Nathan. He's talking to King David He says, in your house, in your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Another example, in Psalm 89, 3 and 4, it says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your, your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So God, there are many other instances of this, but God promised he would establish this kingdom that would last forever and ever through the Israelites, and specifically in the line of David. 
So the nation of Israel had to have been confused when things did not turn out very well for them. Eventually, the Old Testament closes. All right, we just get a really big, broad brushstroke of the Old Testament there. But eventually, it closes with no real resolution. The people of God found out that this kingdom of Israel, as they knew it, was just a foreshadow of what was to come, of what God was doing. The New Testament then picks up with the people of God awaiting their Messiah, their Savior, the one true king to come and establish the rule that they had been promised. Now, of course, they thought that this rule would be a physical presence, a visible nation like the other kingdoms of the world, like the Romans who had been occupying them at the time. But as we now know, God didn't send Jesus to come and establish a rule like the Israelites thought. He came to establish a rule that was actually far more encompassing than anybody could ever have imagined. And he came to establish it in a way that no one could have expected. So we get to Matthew. The scene is set. And now we have to look specifically in the book of Matthew to get the context of this Sermon on the Mount. So right at the beginning of the Gospel account, if you want to flip over just a few a few pages maybe, to Matthew 1.1, we see that there's this genealogy shared. So think about this again. Think about the overarching storyline of Scripture. The first, there's a reason why they put Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament, right? To show that this king that has been promised and that everyone has awaited was now here. There's a genealogy that's shared. Matthew's showing right away Jesus has come from the line of David. Matthew 1.1 says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there. Took a whole entire line of Old Testament and just said, Abraham, David, Jesus, here you go. The king has arrived. The Messiah had come. And throughout the first few chapters of Matthew, there's all sorts of scenes and, and images and allusions to this fact that Christ is a king that had come to earth. That's why Herod uh, does one of the most atrocious things that we actually have in Scripture, right? And he kills all the boys who are age two and under around Bethlehem because he heard that there was a king that was born and he was afraid that he was going to overthrow him. In chapter 417, we read that Jesus began to preach and he was saying, repent, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was declaring the kingdom had come. It was at hand. It was there now. I think we could sum up Jesus' earthly ministry in chapter 4, verse 23, where it says, And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus, the king, had come. The Messiah that the people had been waiting for was there at hand. In chapter 9, verse 35, we read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So there's these two summary statements in chapter 4 and chapter 9 that kind of bracket these handful of chapters and that it serves a purpose and it, Matthew is trying to get us to understand something about these chapters that are in between these two summary statements of what Christ has done. It appears that in Matthew 5 and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, it's dealing with the teaching of what it means to live in the kingdom of God, to, to learn what it means to live in the way of the kingdom. And chapters 8 and 9 deals with the healings and miracles to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. So now we get to the actual portion of the text where we're at. Jesus had come. The promised Messiah had come. The kingdom of God had broken in decisively into the world, and God was beginning to reclaim what was rightfully his and what he had set out to do from the beginning of time, to create a people for his own possession. So in chapter 5, verse 1, we see Jesus retreats away from the crowds. He had been performing all of these miracles, and he needed to rest, and he retreats from the crowds. He takes his disciples, and he begins to teach. This is a very uh, interesting picture we get because it has a lot of correlations to what we see back in Exodus where Moses receives the law at Mount Sinai. We get these dual pictures of someone going up to a mountain and learning what it means to live under God's rule. Now the Sermon on the Mount is not necessarily a law in the same way that the Old Testament law was at Sinai, but what we get is still a standard of a way to live under God's rule. However, this law that's laid out by Jesus is far more difficult to follow, we see. The holiness required to stand before God is not something that we can just do. We can't just do enough to be holy. Because we see how we are called to not just do things right from the outside, but we have to have the right heart posture as well. It's not enough to just not murder somebody. We're called to not even be angry towards them in a sinful way. It's not enough to not just act out in sexual sin. We're called to not even have an impure thought cross our mind. Our sins run so, so deep. And the law that Jesus lays down in his sermon here is far more difficult to follow. Far more difficult to follow than the one that we get from Moses. So the point is not to approach this sermon as a list of just good things to do. It's not a way of living some peaceful life in harmony with those around us. In fact, if you really take the time to read the sermon, you will see it calls us to a really radical way of living that is completely impossible to do on our own. The point of what this set of teachings from Jesus, the point of this set of teachings from Jesus is not just to give us a lifestyle to work towards, but really to see we could never, ever do it. So John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, says this about the purpose of the collection of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, first, 
It shows the non-Christian that he cannot please God by himself because he cannot obey the law and so directs him to Christ to be justified. Secondly, it shows the Christian who has been to Christ for justification how to live so as to please God. More simply, as both the Reformers and Puritans used to summarize it, the law sends us to Christ to be justified and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. So the teachings that we have here in the Sermon on the Mount is to show non-believers that they need to look to Jesus for their justification before God. They can't measure up. The demands of the law are too much to achieve on your own. But it's also meant to remind people that if you are in Christ, you are already justified. You are free to follow this way of the kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God created those who live in his kingdom under his rule, by his word, to spread his glory by living a life of good works for all to see. If you're in Christ, (laughs) you're already righteous in the eyes of God. Sorry if I tripped up Siri there, you know. It's all good. But by God's grace, from start to finish, through the work of Jesus, you are justified. You're adopted. You're cleansed. Now free to follow Him. If you don't know Jesus, then you're invited to know that you can stop striving. You're invited to stop acting like you can pull it all together, because you cannot. The reality is you can never do enough right things to be right. So what do we do now? Where do we go from here? We understand what the Sermon on the Mount is for. And Jesus, being who he is, knows exactly what people will do when they start to hear him teach. They will see all he has done in his proclamation of the gospel... They will see all of his powerful signs of healings, and they will do one of at least two things. They will either hear all of this and say, you know what, I think I have to start performing. I have to perform to do all of these things right. Or they'll say, I would like to know how I can do the same exact things you're doing, Jesus, because that's pretty cool. I'd like to perform healings and cast out demons. So Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, a list of blessings for people who are already in the kingdom of God, already in Christ. And he starts with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So right off of the bat, we see that Jesus is kind of setting the groundwork for saying, before you think about anything else I'm going to say from this point on, You have got to be poor in spirit. Those are the ones who are blessed. 
And the blessing that we see that the poor in spirit receive is the kingdom of heaven. This first beatitude is the key to understanding kingdom life under the rule of God. It's the key for those who don't know Jesus yet, who haven't been reconciled, and also for those who already do know him. We, in and of ourselves, are called to be poor in spirit. And simply this means we have to understand our holistic poverty apart from God. This is not just talking about a physical poverty, but going to the depths of who we are in our soul. Recognizing that we have a soul poverty apart from God. Spiritual bankruptcy. Nothing to offer at all. Nothing that we can do can give us the holiness required to stand before God. It is those who have been made to recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt on their own, those who have nothing to bring to the table who the Lord reveals himself to. Those who have come to the end of their rope, those who realize they can't do it anymore on their own, they need a Savior. These are the ones who are poor in spirit, who God graciously grants into his kingdom through Christ. Now specifically for us, in our culture, in our context, it can be very, very hard to come to this point. To come to the point of acknowledging our powerlessness. Because we don't really, if we're honest with ourselves, live in a place that puts uh, people on a pedestal who are humble, who are gentle, who are lowly. We don't, we don't put them up for recognition very often at all. We praise the strong and the capable and the wise and the wealthy and the educated. And there is a reality that we are so materialistically abundant, it can be hard often to really think past our physical needs. We get preached that self-sufficiency is what you should be striving for. Independence is a virtue. We are free. And that freedom means no one can tell us what to do. The reality is this seeps into our spiritual lives, to our communities, into our relationships with others, and into our relationship with God. We start to think that we really don't need other people. And it's really, really dangerous. Probably one of the closest pictures that we get of this in Scripture close analogy to our culture today is in Revelation 3.17 where there's this account of Jesus addressing the church in Laodicea and if you've read Revelation or heard of this before you know it's the one where Christ accuses, it's the church where Christ accuses them of being lukewarm you know, they're just kind of apathetic, they're just kind of like they're neither hot nor cold, they're just kind of like meh, cool, I think we'll take this as long as it benefits us essentially but it's interesting what Jesus specifically calls out in them. In Revelation 3.17, he says, For you say, this is Jesus talking to the Laodiceans, You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, 
poor, blind, and naked. So this church, despite all of their claims, was not really following Christ at all. They were self-satisfied. They were operating on superficial terms. And all the while, they did not recognize their spiritual poverty before God. Throughout Scripture, we get all sorts of pictures of our poverty as humans and how the solution is to be found nowhere else and by no one else, by nothing else other than God. Isaiah is a book that is loaded with wonderful pictures of this. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Another example in Isaiah 66 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And there are many, many other examples. But when we really think about it, who in the, who in the world are we in comparison to God? That sounds like a silly question, of course. But practically, do we not act often as if we are the center of the universe? We're the reference point. Like we have all the power to take care of everything on our own. When in reality, there is nothing apart from the grace of God that we have. Nothing. Even very practically, provision of food and shelter, good things. Every breath and opportunity in life is only there because of God's grace. We are completely and utterly dependent on Him. Whether we recognize it or not. Time and time again throughout Scripture, we see how God uses people in means that the world would never expect. And this is to display His power over any power that we think we may have in ourselves. When you have little by the world standards, this is where we often can see this so clearly. Or have you ever been brought really low before? in your own life, and experienced the need you have for God. This could come through the loss of a job. It could come through the loss of a relationship. Maybe a health issue. Or a failure on your part. Maybe you're there today and life is just super hard. And God welcomes you to find rest in Him in Christ. It's in these moments of life, by God's grace, He can open our eyes to see our deep need of Him. He cares so much about what you're walking through right now, but He also wants you to know that you need Him because of the depth of our spiritual depravity. We pray that you would get a deep conviction of sin and see that you need a savior, because when you are powerless and dependent and in a situation that requires you or puts you in that position, you can really understand what it means, what it means to be poor in spirit. 
John Calvin says, he who only is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. And the good news is that in your pain, or if you have an overwhelming sense of your sin and spiritual poverty, Jesus is very, very near. Luke 4, in Luke 4.18, um, Jesus is walking into, walking into the synagogue and he picks up a scroll and he's reading from Isaiah and he says this, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then if you read on there, he rolls up the scroll, hands it back, and says that all of this has been fulfilled in him, essentially. So that's like the greatest mic drop of all time where Jesus just says, everything you've read in the Old Testament here it is. But you notice he says he's come to pro- proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus came to proclaim good news to those who are at the end of their rope. Those who recognize their great and deep need. This rule of God that Jesus ushered in brought salvation. And this salvation is a gift as absolutely free as it is utterly undeserved. All we can do when we recognize our powerless state is to receive this gift of God. Matthew 18 says we have to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to humble ourselves to the point where we know we bring nothing on our own, and I think that's such a good picture because if you think about a child... They come into this world 100% helpless on every level, every single level. And as they are nurtured and provided for, hopefully, even though they bring nothing to the table, they begin to accept what their guardians say, just freely. This is how God calls us to approach him. To approach him like a child who trust in the provision and the protection of a loving father. If you've ever had the experience of having a loving earthly father, you know that you just trust him. You humbly accept what he says and what he offers. In Jesus' day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom. They thought they were rich and religious and they had enough merit before God Nor was it the zealots who were a group of people who thought that God's kingdom would come by blood and sword, by an actual war. Instead, it was sinners. If you look at the Old Testament, you know, Christ says, excuse me, the New Testament, Christ says, I came to call sinners. It's sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, the blind, the sick, those who were possessed by demons, those who are poor, who knew that they could offer nothing and achieve nothing on their own. God delights when you come to him empty-handed. He already knows you do not measure up. And that's the good news. That's the good news. Jesus fulfilled everything you cannot. The first beatitude shows everyone what it means to both enter and how to continue to live In the kingdom of God, we must first and foremost recognize our great 
need. Jesus came to begin the reign of God's kingdom on a spiritual level. And from the time Jesus walked the earth in his perfect life, in his atoning death, and in his victorious resurrection, God's kingdom has been spreading like wildfire throughout the nations. And it's here now. If you're in Christ, you're a part of it. Jesus is ruling from the right hand of God the Father, and he extends his mercy to all who would come and humbly accept what he's accomplished for them. Because the reality is, at the end of the day, everyone is really poor in spirit. Every single person. Everyone is spiritually bankrupt. Everyone is helpless before God. But it's those who understand this, who understand and feel their need. It is those who are called blessed. Those who are called blessed in their poverty of spirit. Those who humbly accept what God has done for them in Christ. So before you understand any other blessing in the Beatitudes or even think about living a life that we're called to live in the kingdom of God, you first have to come to the sense that we are poor in spirit. And when you get to this point and recognize your need of a Savior and accept what Christ has done for you, then you can experience real life as a citizen in the kingdom of God that is absolutely at hand. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this day again and uh, just the opportunity to intro the Beatitudes, Lord, that lead to um, just knowing what it's life to, like to live in your kingdom under your rule. I pray for those who are here today who do not know you, for those who uh, have not recognized their poverty of spirit that they would and that they would know that you meet them there and love them and want them to put their faith in Christ. I pray for those of us who are already in Christ that we would continue to remember that we're called to be humble and gentle as you were and lowly and to know that apart from you we are nothing. I pray for the remainder of this day and uh, just as we go from here this week, that we would be folks who just herald the good news that the King has come and that the kingdom of God is at hand and people can participate in that. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.